It's the first week of July 2011. Detective Julia Bowman settles in at her elbow-beaten desk at the Laguna Beach Police Department. And on that desk is a manila folder. With just a post-it saying, look into this with her signature. Or see if you can do anything with this. Something like that. The post-it note is from her sergeant, who's just gone out on medical leave. In her cramped cubicle, Detective Bowman opens that folder. All of her kind of extra notes, the vehicle checks, the reports from DHS or those kind of things. So they were all contained in this manila folder. It's a missing person case. Now, people are reported missing from time to time in Laguna Beach, just like anywhere else. But since the 1980s, pretty much all of them have turned up. The papers on her desk tell the story of a young millionaire named Chris Smith who sailed off into the Pacific. Bowman says the betting money in the department was that Chris Smith would pop back up just like all the rest of them did. Even so, Bowman's intrigued. I think detectives are probably all the same. Like, you just can't help but pull the thread. You know, you, you whatever it is, you're like, well, yeah, I guess I'll work. Like, I can't help but get into it. The 20 pages or so also include email exchanges between Chris from his far-flung destinations and his family. He seems to be traveling all over the world. The scribbled notes in the folder are punctuated by asterisks and question marks. It's a jigsaw of raw data and possible leads. So I just go to work plotting the timeline and creating links and finding ways that, you know, A plus B equals C, and then seeing if it doesn't, if A plus X equals C in this story, and it's like, well, X is your red flag. After a few days huddling with those notes and the case documents, Bowman concludes, there's something wrong with this story. Our other sergeant walks in, like, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't think this guy's missing. And so I showed him this timeline that I've been creating, and started saying these things that didn't really make sense about the case. And he's like, yeah, okay, then then run with it. Detective Bowman doesn't yet know where this hunch will take her. She's about to stumble into a web of lies, not the little white kind. Big lies, lies so huge, but so convincing that people actually believe them. She is right about one thing. This is not how people normally behave. I had a gun in my desk drawer. We were prepared for anything. We're walking around with our flashlight, and that's when we discover some blood. Ruthless, diabolical greed to the extreme. I mean, that's really what this boils down to. I'm Matt Gutman, and this is the first episode of 2020's Cutthroat, Inc., Our story begins a year before Detective Julia Bowman opened that manila folder. On a breeze-kissed catamaran off the Galapagos Islands, those islands off South America famed for wildlife and beauty. Waves slapped gently against the hull of a 45-foot yacht chartered by a 31-year-old newly minted millionaire named Chris Smith. Skin bronzed, green eyes, a superhero's chin populated by a permanent stubble. 
classically handsome. And not long after his journey began, Chris's mom, Debbie Smith, gets an update. Okay, so this was the first email that I received from Chris on Monday, June 7th, 2010. I'm going on vacation, probably three-week trip to Galapagos Islands in Costa Rica. I'll let you know for sure by Friday. Love you too. Debbie is the matriarch of the kind of family whose members are not embarrassed to say they love each other or to hug in public. Back in 2010, Debbie Smith made herself into her son's unofficial cartographer, excitedly mapping his adventure. But Chris is emailing lots of people. Among them are his father, Steve, and his brother, Paul. The emails from Chris are voiced by an actor throughout the series. Hey, guys. I just finally docked in Ushuaia, a port in Argentina, for a few hours. So I found an internet cafe. Amazing sailing for the past two weeks. We were on a 45-foot sailing yacht, so there's no internet or phones. Just us and the sea. It sounds like a perfect getaway, especially for a surfer who seems to have wanderlust stitched into his DNA. If there's anyone who would understand what he's doing and why, it would be Chris's little brother, Paul. The message continues with an aside to him. Paul, wish you were here, bro. It's gnarly how nice it is. Probably better than the South Pacific, except the surf, since most islands don't have the beaches for it. Chris. All through the previous spring, Chris Smith had been telling his family he was overworked and feeling at the end of his rope. But now, he fires off emails to his parents, his grandfather, his friends, telling them he's blown off that stress-filled corporate life and is getting back to being the carefree surfer boy he used to be. Three weeks isn't enough time, he tells his family he's extending the trip. Basically was saying, I'm headed to Peru and then I'm on the Galapagos Islands, you know, I'm going to travel a bit and I remember saying you know wow I love you you know take pics you know have a great time because but Chris can't send pictures he tells his mom getting off the grid meant giving up his phone this is the note he sent on Tuesday July 13th 2010 I have no phone didn't bring one didn't want to talk to anybody for a bit because I've unplugged myself of that crazy society and fast lane something I should have done so much sooner love you Chris and Chris keeps up with his younger brother, Paul. We psyched for him? <laughs> for sure. Yeah, in a way, to have no stress anymore and to be able to travel. And I figured he'd be surfing at locations he was going. And I just wanted to be happy. You know, I didn't want him to be stressed out. Chris and Paul are remarkably close. The Smith house is filled with pictures of the boys together in the tub, poolside, or stuffed into life vests on lakes where they would water ski. Most of all, these boys love surfing. A few years back, Chris took the profits of a website he'd started and whisked his kid brother off to Tahiti. You know, after I graduated college, he wanted to give me a gift. He had all this money, so he asked me, you know, where do you want to go? And I said, let's go on a surf trip. And he's like, all right, where, where do you want to go? And I said, Tahiti. So we went on a, we booked a 23-day wow. surfing trip. For us, yeah, it was... It was incredible. We hopped around about four different islands in Tahiti. We were on a yacht for seven days. It was just amazing. It was a really good time. This time, Chris's bunkmate is not his brother. He tells Paul it's Tiffany Taylor. Miss Taylor is 
115 pounds. She has a criminology degree, and her astrological sign is cancer. Now, we know that because about a decade earlier, she'd been the centerfold of the November 1998 issue of Playboy magazine. These days, the 30-something entrepreneur is a model with her own business. Even though he doesn't tell his parents about her, Chris attaches a picture of his eye-catching companion in an email to Paul. In the photo, she's emerging from a pool in a skimpy bikini. Most families would be alarmed by a sudden departure like Chris's. But mothers know their boys. And Debbie Smith learned long ago that to decompress, Chris sometimes has to wander off for a bit and unplug. Whenever he would get stressed through his years, sometimes he'd say, I'm going to go to Hawaii for a week. I'm going to go hike somewhere, you know, and he would do that. And so that wasn't uncommon because sometimes you just, you know, sometimes he just needed to get away. You know, sometimes to his family, this sudden trip seems like a good thing. Trouble at work had nearly driven Chris over the edge the past year. His mother, Debbie, reads me another email from late August 2010. This past year and a half was such a nightmare for me, and I even contemplated doing unspeakable things because I was so stressed, angry and scared and confused. But this traveling and living on a subsistence level has really started to change how I see things and what matters to me. I'm actually... Unspeakable things. What is it that's clouding his dream adventure? Most of us would trade places with Chris in a heartbeat. He's handsome, healthy, fit, and wealthy. His condo in Laguna Beach is near some of Southern California's best surfing spots. Nightmare, right? Right now in the afternoon, you can see the sun glittering off the Pacific Ocean. Some of the waves breaking... Let's add living in Orange County to that list. This is a surfer's dream. Just south of L.A., Orange County is bustling, prosperous. It averages about 280 sunny days a year. You can make your fortune from 9 to 5 and spend your off hours sunning or surfing. Of course, almost anyone with a TV knows that Orange County is where you go to live your dream life. You might have seen the O.C. I'm not sure everybody sees that as something to celebrate. What, you want to stay in Orange County forever? Grow old playing golf and chatting about the NASDAQ? No, I'm just saying. Or caught an episode or three of the real housewives of Orange County. You know what? I'm living the O.C. lifestyle again. I feel like royalty. There's a fair bit of conformity here, but that's not really Chris. You see... Chris isn't from Orange County. He did grow up on the ocean, but north of here, in a farm town called Watsonville. It's a place where everybody knows everybody, but in a good way. The kind of place where you ride your bike down to Beach Street, home of the annual Strawberry Festival. Freckled with a batch of sports-battered teeth and a bowl cut, Chris was into everything as a kid, including the junior lifeguards. Here he's interviewed on Santa Cruz's local TV station, KSBW. So do you want to be a lifeguard when you grow up? Yeah, because I think it's pretty fun being at the beach every day while sunny and enjoying the sun and stuff and saving people's lives. Saving people's lives. Just like his dad, 
Steve Smith, who at the time was a firefighter after having been a cop for a decade or so. Steve is 6'3"-ish, statue of a man, a thatch of graying hair. Pictures from that time show him triumphantly carrying a grinning Chris on his shoulders. I've been telling you a lot about Chris's parents, and not just because they're lovely people, which they are, but because they're two of the heroes of this story. When Steve and Debbie need to fight like hell, they do. That'll come later. For now, they're just the parents of two boys. Those boys are Chris and Paul Smith. That's a job in itself. That's them water skiing. Now, the Smith house is on Kelly Lake, a water sports mecca surrounded by modest bungalows. Paul is sweet-faced, sensitive, and younger than Chris by two years. He is his big brother's sidekick, and Chris has been protective of Paul from the cradle. I think Paul was like six months old, and Chris was maybe almost two and two months or something, and they were in the same room. I think Chris had gotten out of his crib at nap and gone into his brother's crib because it had broken. He probably was jumping in there. And then he comes running out of the room. He's like, baby, baby head. Paul's head was stuck between the platform and the rails, you know, but he was... As they get older, Chris stays in the role of being his brother's keeper. Ever since I was really little, he felt like he was there to protect me, to provide for me, and uh, became kind of his mindset as we, we got older. I don't know many brothers that are as close as we were. We just had a unique bond. In a place that revels in the outdoors, Chris is a star. A natural athlete, he starts surfing at eight. He's a magician on a wakeboard, which is like water skiing on a short surfboard. Breathtakingly audacious tricks are his trademark that get him recruited to go pro. And his dad, Steve, says sometimes they land Chris in the ER. And all of a sudden I hear Paul screaming, Dad, Dad, just screamed at the top of his lungs. I got on the top of the deck where our house is at. That's Chris out there, and he was buns up in the water, his head's on the water. So Paul went and dove in the water. I told her to call 911. I went out all this time, and Chris's head is on the water. Chris, of course, made it out. Though he might have wished he had it. Then we wrung his little neck. Uh, like, don't about do that. Because he should have been wearing a helmet and a person, personal mm-hmm. floating device. And usually did. Stunts like that are what propelled Chris's brief pro wakeboarding career. His last aerial trick, on a wakeboard at least, comes when he's 19. In a final agonizing wipeout, he ruptures his Achilles tendon. And that sickening pop announces the end of his career. Chris struggles in school. He's devilishly smart, but dyslexic. Here's his mom, Debbie. And back in that time, even though we had him in private schools and had tutors, no one really knew how to deal with that. You know, he was really smart, um, hands-on, and anything visual. But when you get down to writing, that was getting really hard. That's why when the computer age, he just excelled because he knew how to make that work for him. College isn't going to be for him. But Chris does have an uncanny ability to turn an opportunity into profit. Maybe it's surfing that gives him a knack for spotting an opening and seizing the golden moment. His brother Paul is awestruck by how quickly Chris becomes successful. And he got into the tech industry somehow and developed a website 
and it was a wholesale search engine. So you, wholesalers could search products to find that they could purchase on wholesale. He was making very good money at a young age. You know, he was making forty to seventy-five thousand a month. A month. A month. Yeah. Yep. He was making a lot of money. In the early two thousands, Chris moves to Southern California, looking to strike it rich. His goal is to squirrel away enough to allow him to do more traveling and more surfing. He's already started a couple of websites, and by 2008, he's been recruited by a company called Leadpoint to work in part of the advertising world called Lead Generation. Now, Lead Generation is where all the money in our story comes from, so you should know what it is. You see, most TV and radio ads hawk products to a mass market, uh, things you can buy. Pickup trucks, fizzy cold drinks, stool softeners. Those kinds of ads, say for Sprite or Mercedes, are sleekly produced big-budget affairs. It's luxurious. It handles the road extremely well. The car is simple, intuitive. My father always told me to buy the best. You'll never be disappointed. But there is another side of the ad biz, a niche that promotes not products, but services. Companies looking for clients who will pay them to do something. Each individual who calls in could become a lucrative customer. If you've ever had a sleepless night in front of the TV, you've heard those ads. Drowning in credit card debt? Call now. Those types of ads don't cost much to make, but they get results. Advertisers spend more than a billion dollars a year on them. And when you call that number on the screen, you become a lead. The company that placed the ad sells your contact information to businesses eager for new clients. Businesses like personal injury lawyers, payday loan companies, even dentists. Those businesses can pay 50, 100, even 200 bucks for your information. Multiply that by a few hundred thousand, and you've got a gold mine. Chris is a whiz at crafting the pitches that inspire people to pick up their phones. Kristen Malia is a colleague at Leadpoint, the company where Chris works, and she's awestruck by his talent. Chris was the guy in charge of getting the supply and making the phone ring. And that was a very important part of making this business a success. Oftentimes, if you don't have the supply, you're toast. Like, nothing's going to happen. So Chris made it happen. It's during Chris's time at Leadpoint that he crosses paths with a young man whose desire to get rich quick mirrors his own. His name is Edward Shin. They're a good match, Chris Smith is creative and a bit of a techie. Ed Shin is smooth and charming with a head for business. He's the type who ropes in the clients who make a business profitable. They're a good match for another reason, too. Chris isn't a typical businessman. He'll work late, sleep late, and sometimes party hard. But his brother Paul says... He's also freakishly productive. He would work for six, seven, eight, ten hours straight listening to ambient electronic music and just getting an incredible amount of workload done just because of his ability to focus. His style of working isn't the only unusual thing about Chris Smith. Here's how that former co-worker Kristen Malia 
gently puts it. He was, you know, good looking, very fun um, and driven, but also quirky. I mean, he definitely had a unique way of thinking about a lot of things. His friends would often get an earful about the conspiracy theories he believed in. That's what his former partner, Ed Shin, says. He told me about a huge underground tunnel network in the United States with a huge underground city in Denver. Army drills were being run for martial law internment camps but you know some of it some of the stuff was super far-fetched but some of it i can see where connections were being made and he was a big believer in uh, extraterrestrial life aliens area 52 all that stuff chris is deeply suspicious of government and he hates that his money is going to pay for it he was like anti-government and taxes like we shouldn't pay taxes that kind of thing Make no mistake, Chris is ambitious, but it's a different kind of ambition than most. He's not yearning for a mansion. He just wants to make enough to be able to go to any beach he wants and never look back. Chris Smith was incredibly driven. He was very passionate about what he did, but he was very, very uh, interested in being successful and making money. He wanted it all. He definitely had big dreams and big visions when it came to not only building a successful company, but also being uh, very wealthy as a result. Ed Shin wants to get rich too, but he's different. He's smooth, impressive, presentable. He typically handles the client relationships. Ed Shin is the image of young American and immigrant success. He's a church-going, community-minded family man. Little kids, attractive wife, impeccably dressed, and not the type to rant about aliens, black helicopters, or other conspiracy theories. Ed's parents moved here from South Korea. Molding their only child into a success was their goal. They were determined, and they were tough. You know, it was expected and demanded of me to always get good grades. Um, my mother went out of her way, though. Um, and this is very Korean, I think, and probably Asian overall, to make sure I had, you know, if I was struggling in a particular subject, she hired a tutor to come help me. You know, SAT prep, I was going to those Princeton reviews, you know, uh, another private prep class, you know, all that stuff. Ed felt that he had to excel at everything. Golf was his sport. What kind of league was he in? Well, his high school team went up against a guy you might have heard of, Tiger Woods. Well, we played each other. And And they won. Yeah, he had a terrible temper. The couple times I played against him, he'd throw his clubs, he'd cuss at every bad shot. I mean, that's also why people liked him. He had that killer instinct. Right, right. Ed goes to college at UC San Diego, where he was recruited to play golf. He's voted the president of his fraternity. And right out of college, he's recruited by Merrill Lynch and then Morgan Stanley, the Ivy League of the financial world. In his first job in 1999, Ed Shin's making 60 grand a year as a stockbroker. Not bad for a 22-year-old. So that was the initial, I think, really where... Okay, I'm being conditioned, especially as a young professional, that it's all about the money. 
you know, Gordon Gecko from Wall Street, you know, greed is good. Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. That kind of thing. So that point, I think... Ed takes that motto, greed is good, seriously. After a couple of years in finance, including a mortgage business, he wants more. He tries his hand as an entrepreneur and buys a sports memorabilia magazine in Las Vegas. That was a debacle in of itself because I tried to, I basically bought the licensing rights to a magazine. It wasn't a bad idea, but Ed loses his shirt. His printer successfully sues him for unpaid bills, and humiliated, he limps back to Orange County. Back in the O.C., Ed finds acceptance in his church. He meets a man who sees in him not a failure, but potential. That man's name is Joe Gray. They don't seem to be alike. Ed comes across as a young go-getter. Joe Gray as a serious middle-aged businessman. In fact, over the last three decades, Joe has built several multi-million dollar businesses. Ed says Joe Gray came into his life just in time. So I'm, you know, I was struggling and Joe knew about it because we were friends. Joe Gray and Ed deepened their friendship at the four-person Bible study group at their church. Bible study is not meant to be a job fair, but Joe sees a divine hand guiding things. I also felt that, you know, Ed was put in my path for a reason. Joe rescues Ed financially he hires him as vice president of a new company called LG Technologies. He seemed like a driven individual, and um, I was impressed by his uh, breadth of experience being a young man. Um, the fact that he was an entrepreneur. I expected that in putting Ed in charge of this fledgling lead generation technologies, that I was putting somebody Uh, in place that I could trust, that I thought I had developed a level of loyalty with. That sense of owed loyalty is also based on the fact that Joe Gray even buys a house for Ed, his wife, and the two toddlers they had at the time on a rent-to-buy basis. He was trying to buy this house, and he wasn't able to close on it. And Ed said, "Um, would you consider buying this home? and maybe leasing it back to me. Ed is now living in a home owned by Joe Gray and running one of Joe Gray's businesses, LG Technologies. And he starts bringing in revenue. His biggest client is Leadpoint. Leadpoint, that was where Chris Smith was working. He was a uh, account executive there. <laughs> and then I'm, Chris was, when we finally decided we were going to work together, Chris was assigned to our company. And so the two start spending hours a day on the phone. As the business grows, Ed tells Joe Gray that it's time to bring in some more help. His friend, creative whiz Chris Smith, has just the skill set they need, and he's hired as a consultant. Joe Gray officially brings Chris in in September 2008, but he's not impressed with him in their first meeting. And it was at a a party in the evening hours where somebody was drinking a little bit. It was the first time I met him. He walked up and he said, bleepity bleep bleep, we're going to knock it out of the ballpark. 
And, These are the first words. And the first words boss. that he said to me were colorful, and I I realized he maybe had a little too much to drink. Maybe his you know uh, inhibitions were a little lowered. Um, but yeah, to be perfectly honest, the first time I, I met Chris, he he struck me as um, a, a bit carefree. <laughs> Regardless, Joe Grace's fledgling LG Technologies is indeed taking off and making a tidy profit. On New Year's Eve 2008, just four months after being hired, Chris abruptly quits. Three months later, Ed Shin suddenly quits too. When that happens, Joe Gray knows something's gone very wrong with his new company. I think it was at that moment that I realized... Oh boy, we've got a big problem. Apparently, we've been bamboozled here. When Joe Gray looks at the email traffic, he starts to understand how badly he'd been bamboozled. And so, I, I think I spent the next week pulling up these these emails between Ed and Chris, trying to figure out what's going on here. Diving into the financial records reveals huge gaps. Payments that clients said they paid that were not deposited in the company's accounts. It gets worse. Ed and Chris built a company all right, just like Joe wanted. But it wasn't LG Technologies, and it was without Joe Gray. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hey, I'm Nate Thurston, and I'm supposed to write a 30-second ad that tells you everything you need to know about my podcast, Good Morning Liberty, which I co-host with Charlie, my best friend of 20 years. That's a tough feat to accomplish, but let's give it a shot. At Good Morning Liberty, we cover the news every day from an individual liberty perspective. We believe that you own yourself, and a tyrannical, overreaching government is the biggest threat to your liberty. If you agree, you can find a new episode every day of the week on your podcast app or by going to BernieLies.com in your browser. In April 2009, Chris and Ed launched their own company, which they call the 800 Exchange. They'd been planning for this company, it seems, for a while. In fact, Chris had bought the domain name 800exchange.com even before Joe Gray hired him. The 800 Exchange, named for those 800 numbers you dial, does almost exactly what Joe Gray's LG Technologies does. The new company sets up shop in an office park with a moat of drought-resistant plants in San Juan Capistrano. They move into Suite 123 and hire a few employees. With Chris as the creative lead and software guy and with Ed making sales, the 800 Exchange is a runaway success almost overnight. His skill set really was perfect for the creative part of the job. His job was really 
building our software application. Ed says the root of that success is Chris's gift for writing the copy that inspires people to call. Um, he, he was great at writing commercials. All that radio advertisements that we did, it was they were like 95% were from him. It's not going to win them a Pulitzer, but it did deliver. In a matter of months, the 800 exchange is pulling in a million dollars a month. And according to their bank statements, 80% of their income goes to profit and paying employees, mostly themselves. And when you do the math, it means that even Chris, with a slightly smaller share, gets $10,000 richer every day, including weekends. Business is so good, Chris brings in his kid brother, Paul, to share in the bonanza. So Paul Smith moves down from Oregon with his wife, Leah, and their two kids. Paul joins the operation as the new head of sales. You're in Laguna Niguel, Mission Viejo. It's sunny and, you know, it's a beautiful place. And surfing on the weekends, is, it was awesome. We had a great staff. All the people that worked at Inner Exchange were great people. There was a lot of money, and we, it was, we were very successful. Now, with Paul on board, Chris really does have it all. He spends a lot of time with Paul, Leah, and their two daughters on the beach, taking them to nearby Disneyland, lounging by the grill. Maybe it's this idyllic time with them that makes family life seem so appealing. Whatever it is, it seems Chris has become open to settling down. All he needs now is to find the right woman. At a party to ring in the new year of 2009, friends introduce Chris to Erica. She's a ballet dancer from Santa Barbara with red hair and green eyes. His mom says the whole family was smitten. Tell me about Erica. Um, I love Erica. I mean, I think she's a great girl. Chris and Erica spend every weekend together, despite the hours-long drive separating them. He had brought her up to our house, and they spent three days there. And, you know, it was snowy. You know, it was still snowy. And uh, we had a great time just sitting around bonfire. But he... Chris and Justin, so we stayed out there like 4 o'clock in the morning drinking wine, just talking and everything. Smitten seems to go both ways. But she had said then she just loved him so much, and he had told his father he loved her. Um, well, he was a little bit serious because uh, he'd yeah. lean over to me like that. Dad, isn't she beautiful? And then one time he leaned over to me and actually goes, Dad, I think this may be the one. Yeah. Chris is dreaming of settling down and even starting a family. His pal and partner, Ed Shin, is already living the reality of family life. Now Ed's got three kids. By the end of the year, a fourth is on the way. He tells everyone how proud he is of his family. But sometimes, when Ed has his fill of interrupted sleep, he needs to unwind. And his destination is almost always Las Vegas. Vegas is a place where he mixes pleasure and business. He makes a point of offering 800 exchange clients unforgettable Vegas experiences, lavish meals, the best tables, and entertainment. And Ed and Chris really take that entertainment very seriously. At least 
That's what Chris's girlfriend, Erica, later tells police investigators. He would go on these crazy trips in Vegas. He told me about one of their trips, and they had, like, strippers and porn stars, and everyone's naked and in some suite, and these are, like, their business meetings. Erica says that when she and Chris got together, he promised he wouldn't be doing stuff like that anymore. For both Ed and Chris, life is good and full of perks. They treat themselves to luxury cars. Ed's driveway is gridlocked with Audis and Mercedes. For Chris, a Range Rover with cargo space for his custom surfboards. He was always buying stuff. Expensive dinners, expensive wine, clothes. Still, his sister-in-law, Leah, says Chris wasn't attached to possessions. He'd give anything away to his loved ones, even the keys to his brand new white Range Rover. I remember uh, when Chris first got that car, I said, um, I had a cousin in town and I said, can we take it for a spin? And he held out his keys and he said, you can have it. And I said, and Paul glared at me and I said, no, no, I just, it looks fun. Let's take it for a spin. And he goes, no, you can have it. I'll drive your car. So he was so generous in that sense. Like he probably would have given it to me. Ed and Chris expense almost everything to the 800 exchange. They've got it made, but their success comes at a terrible cost to their former boss. When Joe Gray hears that Ed Shin put up the seed money for the 800 exchange, he is pretty sure he knows where that money came from, his company. The Shin embezzlement, as we're calling it. Um, Obviously, they got a new business out of all of that. Um, The embezzlement paid for that business. How much money do you think Ed Shin embezzled from you? I think it's like $2.47 million. That calculation, Joe Gray adds, includes not only cash, but the leads and business Ed Shin stole. And adding insult to a truckload of injuries, they've even lured away Joe Gray's biggest customer. Joe Gray is sickened by the betrayal and by the moral vacuum he thinks was at the root of it. And so sometimes it's like, oh, I I can get rich quick. I can compromise here. I can compromise there. And somehow I can justify it. And it's going to be okay. And I'm going to get what I want. And not thinking about the collateral damage. He's devastated. I stepped away from a company I built over 25 years because I think through this entire process, this nonsense that was going on, my investors lost a little bit of faith in me. What Ed Shin did to Joe Gray was cruel. It's also a crime. Prosecutors soon figure out what happened to Joe Gray's money. Some went to the new startup company, the 800 Exchange, but hundreds of thousands of dollars were also signed over to the Wynn Casino. It's not a hard case to crack. Bank records detail almost every transaction. These days, Ed admits he stole. I was working for the company, doing a lot of business development, bringing in new clients, the money then I would skim it off the top and then say it was 150 and then it'd be like 110,000 would be put into LG's account. So then I skimmed 40 and then looked like they only made 110,000 that month. It tries to justify that by claiming that Joe Gray was underpaying him. Joe says that's not true. Anyway, the law doesn't let you steal money 
just because you think you deserve it. Investigators follow the money trail and conclude that all the missing money was diverted into Ed Shin's personal accounts. They find evidence he siphoned off hundreds of thousands of dollars. And in October 2009, Ed Shin is arrested and charged with embezzlement. Investigators find no evidence that Chris participated or even knew about it. And while Joe Gray makes it clear he wants both to go down, it's Ed he really wants punished. I knew the guy was sick. I had a mandate. My mandate was hold him accountable. Do whatever I had to do to make sure that the district attorney in Riverside County would hold him accountable. I expected jail time. As for Chris, Joe Gray contends he was part of the scheme that ruined his business. Joe Gray's company sues Ed and Chris for more than $10 million in damages and penalties. The suit alleges they violated their contracts and competed unfairly, among other accusations. Now, there are two cases pending, one criminal, one civil. For now, Chris is only named in the civil case, and he hasn't been charged with a crime. That was just Ed. But according to Ed, Chris still worries he's not in the clear. He was super paranoid about him getting arrested, especially when I got arrested on October of 2009. That freaked him out because he thought he was next. Chris did set up the 800 exchange funded by Ed Shin with money he stole from Joe Gray. The new company competed with Joe Gray's company And Chris and Ed started setting it up while they were both on Joe Gray's payroll. Now, that was sneaky and ethically dicey, but not a crime. To his girlfriend, Erica, Chris obsesses over his reputation and his fear of getting hauled into court. One weekend, he just like, we kind of had plans. I think he was going to come up and see me, or I don't remember, vice versa. He was in Malibu, and he called me that day and was like, I'm going to... Sedona, Arizona. I was like, you're going to Sedona? I'm like, okay. I'm like, I thought we were going to hang out this weekend. He was like, no, I just have to get out of here. He's like, I'm so stressed out. And he just flew to Arizona for the weekend and went like hiking through. There's some areas there that are supposed to be energy fields. I don't know. So he was said he was out in these energy fields all weekend. There's a paradox about Chris. He knows how to make money. But the stress that comes with it seems to fuel his paranoid worldview and his distrust of the government and its legal system. He often unloads not just on his girlfriend, but on his family. Chris would talk about the Matrix. The Matrix, to him, was just all the people around that are always wanting your attention, you know, get you off track from your business. You know, there's so much going on. You know, there's so much... um, confusion in the world. That was, he would say, that would be like the Matrix. So Chris Smith can't shake the fear that he could end up behind bars, even though he's been told no criminal charges are being filed against him. He drinks. He pops sleeping pills. He's convinced American society is going to collapse and start salting away a trove of gold coins against the day that banks will fold and paper money will be worthless. Sometimes Erica comes along for the buys, 
And just to note, you'll hear her dog barking in the background. But he just mentioned how gold is just safer in general. So if he did do travel or if he did disappear, he would just take all his gold with him. How um, much would you say in gold did he have? I only knew, I knew of 20,000 that I helped him get. And then he had some, he had maybe gone two or three times before. And he got 10 grand each time. So 20, So he's 50. Probably around 50, and I don't know if he had more before that or what. So, so from what he talked about and what you actually witnessed, it would add up to around 50000 right. in gold. Right, okay. just from what I know of. Okay. Chris keeps that stash of gold coins in a box in his closet. He advises his brother Paul to wise up to the global disaster that's surely coming. In the meantime, it's Ed Shin whose world is collapsing. He pleads guilty to felony embezzlement and agrees to pay $800,000 in restitution and penalties to settle LG Technology's civil suit. Joe Gray says it was the best he could get, but it doesn't take the edge off his anger or bitterness. It's not even a third of the $2.5 million in cash and leads he says Ed took. And Joe Gray says he lost much more than money. His company, his reputation, his place in society, and his confidence. I remember um, before Ed was arrested for the embezzlement charge, I made sure that I had an armed guard at my house and during business hours at my place of business because on my conscience, I didn't want either of my kids or my wife to be hurt. I didn't want any of my employees to get hurt. I had a gun in my desk drawer. My president- Question is, is it Ed Shin or maybe Chris Smith that Joe Gray should be arming himself against? Erica later tells police something she heard Chris say, something far more unsettling than aliens or secret underground cities. Chris, like would say some pretty gnarly things like I want to go kill his family and like just stuff you don't really say. Chris would say that about the person that yeah. was doing him? Yeah. Okay. Like I want to like torture him and kill his family and like just it, stuff it, you don't say. Erica doesn't know if Chris is just blowing off steam or if he's coming unhinged. She is sure though as she tells police this stuff is just not normal. About a year later, in July 2011, Detective Julia Bowman is consumed with that same strange feeling. Not much about the Chris Smith story seems even close to normal. She's building that timeline step by step. Which was easy for me to do, Just, but also that's kind of the way that, in my mind, I lay everything out there and see what I have. Like if you had a jigsaw puzzle... And you, you know, shake out the box and then turn over all the pieces and you put the, all the corners together or whatever, all the, the, the border pieces together. Like that was kind of what I was doing with my timeline. Timelines should make sense. One event should follow logically after another. But as I was creating that timeline, everything was a red flag. So there wasn't anything that was like, oh, I'm sure he's fine. Okay, this explains that. There was none of that. It was all so strange. In our next episode of Cutthroat Inc., 
With all the money the 800 exchange is making, Ed Shin is starting to spend more time and more money in Vegas. Gambled with his money, gambled with his reputation, his family. No one goes out to Vegas to do anything good. Chris Smith begins to suspect Ed is now stealing from their company. And his girlfriend tells investigators that because of that and Ed's arrest for embezzlement, Chris was getting more and more paranoid. And he's like, everyone's with me, the Matrix is me, everyone's after me. Cutthroat Inc. is a production of ABC Audio in 2020, reported by me, Matt Gutman, written by me and our producer, Richard O'Regan. Produced and edited by Susie Leo and Oluwakemi Aladisui. Additional reporting by producers Tim Gorin and Sonny Antrim. Our editorial producer was Duan Perrin. Casey Tomchek was our production assistant. Additional support by Lydia Noon. Mixing and scoring by Evan Viola. Our researchers are Felisa Fine, Natalie Savitz, and Brad Martin. Special thanks to Josh Cohan and Stacia Deshishku. Terry Lickstein is our executive producer of this podcast, and David Sloan is our senior executive producer of 2020.